The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired, to create a deeper life, to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hello, I'm Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today's guest is Claire B. Willis. Claire is a clinical social worker, an ordained lay Buddhist chaplain, and a yoga teacher. In her private practice, she spent over two decades working with oncology patients and with end-of-life issues. A co-founder of Facing Cancer Together, a community of hope, Claire is also an adjunct faculty member at the Andover Newton Theological School and a former group facilitator and instructor at the wellness community. She earned an M.A. from Episcopal Divinity School and an MSW and an M.E.D. from Boston University. Claire lives in Brookline, Massachusetts, and she's also the author of Lasting Words, A Guide to Finding Meaning Toward the Close of Life. Welcome, Claire. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Cheryl. There's so much I enjoyed about your book, which... um, is one of the main things, of course, we're talking about today, um, including the format. I I love uh, it's for the listeners. It's kind of a um, a large format book. Feels good in the hand. So I <laughs> start by appreciating that. <laughs> Making it beautiful was a really important part of putting this together. I really wanted something for people to hold that was beautiful and easy to handle. And that brings me to the second thing I wanted to say, which is that the um, it's very digestible, it seems to me, for people who are, um, you know, as I know from my work, people who are ill or people who are grieving, and, and most ill people are doing both, of course, um, right. y- the amount you can really incorporate at a given moment can be pretty limited. So I appreciated uh, the book in that way as well. I tried to keep it very simple. <laughs> uh-huh. And yet, um, I found it very deep. The poetry that's interspersed and the invitations to reflect on things uh, were not superficial whatsoever, very deep. I, the, um, when, I, when I wrote the book, and I, I titled it Lasting Words, A Guide to Finding Meaning Toward the Close of Life, um, after it was determined that that was going to be the title and I hired a publicist, she said to me, why did you ever name it that? It should be a guide to finding meaning as we grow older because the issues and the chapters in the book are as appropriate for us as we age as, it, as they are for people who are moving toward the close of life, which was has been an interesting journey with the book because when I go places, I'm really not only talking with people who are 
moving towards the close of life, but I'm also talking a lot and working a lot with people in the last third of their lives. Well, it's that's an interesting thing because, um, you know, for those of us like you or I who've encountered a lot of life endings at a much younger time, uh, the first time some people may confront the end of life, that they are moving towards the end of life, is with aging, don't you think? Yeah. Oh, well, aging is, I think, a process of gradual diminishment. It's very subtle, but it is. It's a series of losses, you know, moving from very minor ones to um, more serious ones. I mean, I'm noticing that in my body, but I'm also noticing the landscape of my friends are changing as people mm. get sick and are leaving this life. It's a lot of change and a lot of loss. Yes, it, it reminds me of an article I read once that said, um, don't worry so much about um, putting money in your retirement account. Make a lot of friends. <laughs> because that, with, friends, with friends, life will be beautiful and you will lose friends. And of course, we've both had those experiences, haven't we? That's right. And there's a community to hold. Um, mm. in the face of that loss, too, which is so important. And as you know, that um, people who stay connected to communities in the face of grief do better than those who isolate, and there's such a strong tendency to do that. You know, one thing I thought about the book is that it's accessible to people who, I guess, might say, I'm not a group person, or, you know, they can... They can um, interact with it and and get meaning uh, out of it and write things all by themselves. But I also was so aware of the sense of community behind the book as I read uh, that that the people that you've encountered were parts of groups where all of this was shared. Right. Well, you know, I, I wrote this book as part of it. It was a thesis for my chaplaincy program. And um, part of it was to be a supplement for chaplains to use or for people to use who didn't have chaplaincy services or social work services, people who could take the book and feel less alone and feel that community behind them, which is part of the reason I constructed the chapters in the way that I did, starting with anecdotes that hopefully would leave people feeling less alone, citing very accessible poetry, doing a little reflection piece, and then having questions for people to reflect on or write on. Um, so I had that very much in mind, and I'm actually um, glad that you 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 could um, pick that up. Oh yeah, it was very it was very I w- I felt as if at certain moments I was sitting in the room with a group of people sharing their writing with each other. Yeah. Um, so that really came through very much, and um, of course the the center I work in doing education, Women's Cancer Resource Center in Oakland, California, has. Uh, always has a writing group as well as an art group and a lot of other things. But it is um, a particularly meaningful way, it seems to me, for people to share, to kind of have that inside time writing and then to share it with other people is is quite profound. There's also something, I think, very particular about writing. When, When we talk with one another, we're looking at each, I mean, unless we're on a radio show, but we're talking to people 
we're reading their nonverbals, and often we're modifying what we say in response to facial expressions or gestures the person we're talking to has. When you're writing, I've always felt that we potentially can access a much more unencumbered voice in ourselves that's not dependent on the audience, but is a deeper relationship with ourself and the page. That's interesting, because one thing I was wondering about and wanted to ask you about is whether you ever encounter people who are very uh, writing phobic, maybe, or, you know, have trouble um, feeling uh, open to putting their words on a page. Does that ever happen Um, as well on the other end? When I have, I've had people come to a writing group who didn't want to write. And I've said to them that silence is a full form of participation. And in the book, I, at the end of each chapter, I say an invitation to reflect or write. And I think you can get a lot out of just reflecting as you can writing. It's different, but it's not less than. It's just a mm-hmm. different form. And so I think it, it has equal value. Most of the people that come to my writing groups come uh, not so phobic. Often the phobia is twofold. One is, uh, I think, a lot of people have traumas from the, when they were younger about that red pen going over the page of what they were writing. Sure. And the other is people get afraid, I think, that someone's going to read what they wrote right. And I talk a lot about keeping what you write uh, safe so that you will write freely. That's a really important thing. And not everybody has lives in a home life where they feel they can have things that are private like that. And I think that's a, that's a problem. Mm, absolutely. But one thing I, <clears throat> I did imagine is um, because of the gentle invitation, and, I, and I'm going to invite you to read a little bit out of the book so people can hear what that sounds like, I could imagine people, you know, starting out hesitant, but responding to that sort of gentle invitation, there's nothing required, you can, you know, there's nothing like saying, I don't require anything of you to kind of open people up in a way um, and make them feel safe to share just a tiny bit. Do you find that happens? Well, I think as soon as I say, when people come into my groups that are new, the first thing I say is silence is a full form of participation in this group. And I think that's very freeing. Mm -hmm. And I really believe it too, because I think you can get a lot out of the group without ever opening your mouth. Absolutely. And um, the kind of, um, you know, as a former introvert, I'm pretty extroverted now, obviously, but as a former introvert, uh, the turning point was giving myself permission not to participate. (laughs) Permission is so important. It because is, isn't as it? soon as something goes under or we quiet down through shame or whatever it is, it's never going to dissolve. You know that, that um, song by Leonard Cohen, Anthem, The Crack is Where the Light Gets In? Mm-hmm, I do. You know, as soon as we can bring things to light, they heal. But if we go under and we get quiet, they fester. Yeah. So just to give people a, a little bit of a taste of the book itself, would you read that um, section on gratitude, which, which is sure. a great can example I, um, of this sense of invitation, I think. Great. Um, can I start by just talking a little bit about what, uh, uh, how I created the book and the different, how I chose the different chapters? 
absolutely. So um, basically, Cheryl, what has come out over the years in my work is that when people approach uh, the end of their lives, I, I think, and I'm sure you see this in your office as well, people have a wish to feel they were known. They have a, a wish to feel they'll be remembered, uh, to feel that their lives made a difference, and um, to bless and f- feel blessed and to celebrate their lives as fully as they can. And this quest, these, some of these questions... Um, I think, are addressed in the book. Um, it's a vehicle for giving people a way to feel like they'll be remembered and to close their life with coherence and meaning. And so what I did was I reviewed in the literature what the common issues that were that come up for people as they're closing their life. And basically, I came up with seven chapters. One was on uh, reviewing their journey or a life review. One was on gratitude. One was on hope. One was on forgiveness, one was on wisdom, prayer, and then saying goodbye. So um, what I'll do is I'll read a little bit on, um, from the chapter on um, uh, gratitude, which um, is one of my favorite topics. Mm-hmm. Each chapter has a poem in it that's very accessible. And one of the things that uh, people say a lot to me is, I love the poetry in the book, which has been a surprise um, to me, but I've been thrilled. And it reminds me of when I heard Mario Como say, I campaign with poetry and I govern with prose. And (laughs) someone asked him what he meant, and he said, "Um, uh, poetry lures us in. And I think there's a certain induction in certain poems. So I'm going to read an excerpt from Gratitude, a short excerpt, and then I want to read a short poem on gratitude as well. Absolutely. Thank you. Okay. So here's the excerpt from the book on, on um, gratitude, the chapter on gratitude. Consider the idea of taking in the good, a phrase used by author Rick Hansen. In the midst of pain and anguish, you can choose to turn your attention toward what is right, however small a gesture, detail, or fleeting moment that might be. By lingering for 10 to 30 seconds on whatever blessings are in your life, you can expand your capacity to handle difficulties and build resilience. This helps to counter the negative habituation of the mind. And then this poem that one of my friends, Barbara Crooker, wrote um, is in this chapter. It's called Praise Song, and I think it, it really is about where your attention goes. Praise the light of late November, the thin sunlight that goes deep in the bones. Praise the crows chattering in the oak trees. Though they are clothed in night, they do not despair. Praise what little there's left, the small boats of milkweed pods, husks, hulls, shells, the architecture of trees. Praise the meadow of dried weeds, yarrow, goldenrod, chicory, the remains of summer. Praise the blue sky that hasn't cracked yet. Praise the sun slipping down behind the beech nuts. Praise the quilt of leaves that cover the grass, scarlet oak, sweet gum, sugar maple. Though darkness gathers, praise our crazy fallen world. It's all we have, and it's never enough. Mm. So beautiful. I was a late arriver to gratitude in my life. Yeah. Uh, not that I didn't have blessings, but I didn't uh, didn't feel grateful when I was younger. And now it's my favorite, favorite feeling. Uh, yeah. Just so um, 
So warming. One thing I was thinking about with this gratitude section is how people I know who haven't experienced calamity, it's fewer and Mm -hmm. fewer as I get older, of course, but (laughs) um, they can't imagine feeling grateful, happy, um, you know, positive, hopeful in the in the face of end of life. Yeah. And, And yet... Um, paradoxically, some of the happiest people I know have confronted death in some way or another. That's right. Uh, but, you know, I think the reason um, I've been asked why I put a chapter on gratitude in the book, and besides it being an important area, there is, um, there's a lot of research right, being done right now on the neuroplasticity of the brain. And what they've found is that the mind is negatively habituated. We're always, historically, we're hardwired that way because earlier in earlier times, we had to be careful and look out for danger. That's how we learned to survive. So it's not a bad thing. But what's happened is that we're still negatively habituated when we don't need to be. So if you think about a typical morning in your house, you get up, you use the bathroom, you make a cup of coffee, you get in your car, you drive where you're going, you get there, and everything is okay. But on a morning, if the toilet clogs up or the coffee maker overflows or you have a fender bender getting to work, you get there and you say, crummy morning. Mm. So often our attention isn't grabbed until our expectations are broken and negative experiences adhere to us like Velcro. We don't ever forget them. They, they just stick. Good experiences go through us like Teflon, water mm. over Teflon. They just flow through us, and we don't remember them in the same way. So if, for instance, I have an, a job evaluation at work, and they tell me 10 things are great and one is negative, my attention's going to rest on the growing edge for myself. I'm not going to probably attend to what happened. So our attention becomes like a combination of a spotlight and a vacuum cleaner. It highlights what it lands on and it brings it into our brain for better and for worse. So when someone's sick, one of the ways of building inner resilience is to spend 10 to 30 seconds lingering with what's right because it will help them deal with the suffering that's going on in their life concurrently. So gratitude actually makes us stronger. And by really lingering for 10 to 30 seconds, we're actually rewiring the brain as well. There's something physiologically happening that's making us more resilient, which is why that's, it's so important. That's such a powerful thing, and it's a, and it's a good place to take, take our break and then come back and talk about that. I love negative habituation. The, the image that came to my mind is living forever in a house with a leaky roof, you know, and becoming used to the water pouring on you. Um, we, right, yeah. we, we do that, don't we? That's right. Um, so we'll come back to talk about that more after the break. And listeners, you can take these few minutes to go to the host page uh, at Voice America, Good Grief host page, and tell me your own story, get in touch with me on all of my social media or on my website. And we can carry this conversation forward and and deepen it between us. You can find Claire Willis at www.lastingwordsbook.com. Be back soon. (laughs) 
your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between. Discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? Every day, you hear so much about different aspects of the health and wellness field. One day, you hear one thing, and the next day, you hear something that contradicts what you heard the day before. How do you know what's right? Try tuning in to The Cutting Edge of Health and Wellness today with Dr. Neil Nathan. Our goal is to educate and explore this field with guest experts in order to help you take control of your health and well-being. Listen Fridays at 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Health & Wellness. Real Life Solutions, Voice America Health & Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. This is your host, Cheryl Jones. I've been talking with Claire Willis, whose book, Lasting Words, A Guide, to finding meaning toward the close of life gives readers a way to create legacy and uh, make uh, positive changes towards the end of life. Their writing cues, inspirational poetry, quotes, just a very beautiful book. And before the break, Claire, we were talking about building resiliency uh, through things like... um, you know, being uh, cultivating gratitude, cultivating um, positivity, and uh, I I very much resonate with that. And that is, in my mind, I'll see what you think about it. So different from this sort of um, positive thinking idea that's out there. Never, never have a negative thought, but is more about balancing. Yes, I'm so glad you said that because. Um what people can often misunderstand this whole concept. The concept is about balancing what we see with the negative habituation of the mind. And what happens, because the mind is hardwired that way, we have to counter it. And when we're sick, we're not ever talking about denying what's wrong or where your suffering is. It's only about bringing into balance um, how you see. So one of the things that I, I put in my book as an exercise is I suggest people keep a gratitude journal and to write down three to five things before they go to bed that happened 
that for which they feel grateful. And what hap- it's such a simple thing, but if you do that for three weeks or more, you start to see good things more pervasively in the course of a day. Your whole view changes. And the, the, one of the interesting things is that gratitude is the one quality that's linked in the research to happiness. So it's a simple way to make your life happier. And probably happier for those around you too. <laughs> one would assume. Huh? <laughs> well, you know, because we um, do. One of the I, things I, in the I, research, which is interesting, is it takes five positive comments in an intimate relationship to undo one negative. Claire, I was about to say. I was about to say exactly the same thing. Oh, okay. <laughs> Just at that moment, yeah, I I find that very um, meaningful in my own relationships to. Yeah. You know, try to say, um, I love you, thank you, um, I appreciate that, you're so good at that, whatever it is, um, to yeah. say those things out loud, because I think we That's are, right. aren't we sort of trained to say the negative and not the positive? We're, we're kind of trained opposite to the way our brains well, actually... <laughs> it's the way the brain's wired. It's how uh, humans learn to survive by noticing what was wrong, but we don't need to do that in our lives today. I mean, you, obviously, you need to see if a car is coming down the street. You know, there's certain things. But we're so hardwired, we do it automatically. So if I teach a yoga class and I have 20 evaluations and 19 of them are positive and one is negative, where does my attention go? Uh, yes, the, in, the, in the courses I teach, I have to look out for that. Yeah, so I, I know exactly look out for what you're... Too. You know, That's I, the hardwiring. Consciously, you know, uh, balance myself and 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 ask myself to pay attention to those other things, that's and that's right. sort of what you're cultivating in your group members. Uh, oh yeah, I do. But I, as I say, and I think it's so important. I just want to emphasize this. I always make space for the sorrow, the grief, whatever is hard. It has to be held uh, right next to it. And that that does bring us a little bit to the next thing I wanted to talk with you about, which is forgiveness. Yeah. Uh, I know from working with people at the end of life or even uh, people facing a trauma such as a cancer diagnosis that doesn't end their life but shakes everything up, that um, the the places that are stuck become very vivid. Uh, the relationships yeah. that aren't healed or difficult, the right. patterns that uh, aren't working, you know, all that becomes very big for lots of people. Uh, not yeah. that it wasn't before, but it's, it's sort of like the light is shining on the lion in the corner or something. Um, so I would imagine this is a really, really potent part of your groups. Would that be fair to say? Yeah, um, forgiveness is a, you know, when I started this book, I thought forgiveness would be the most um, common concern of people toward the close of life. And in fact, it wasn't. The most common concern was um, remembering and fully expressing their love to their loved ones. The second one was gratitude, and the third one was forgiveness, which Mm -hmm. surprised me a little bit. So um, let me read a little bit. Um, I'll read just a couple of paragraphs uh, from the book on forgiveness. But one thing I'll say about this is when I'm working with people who are moving toward the close of life, I only work with them from the point of view of um, to whom do they need to apologize. 
I never ask them to ask others to forgive them because it feels like too tender a time in their life and it takes the agency out of people when they ask for forgiveness because we don't know that it's going to be granted and the last thing we want to do is make life harder for someone when their life is ending. So I always emphasize where they need to make apologies to people and where they need to make amends. Kind of coming so, right with themselves? Is that what yes, you're saying? Yes. Yeah. So here's, here's just a couple of paragraphs from um, uh, Forgiveness, and then I'll read a poem to go with it. Learning to forgive and practicing forgiveness plays a central role in all the major religious and spiritual traditions. In the secular realm, too, researchers have studied the positive benefits of forgiveness. The experience of forgiving, it turns out, decreases anger and lessens depression, anxiety, and stress. It also increases our overall sense of well-being. How do we begin to forgive ourselves? How do we admit to ourselves that we did something wrong? How do we tolerate cracks in our own self-image? How do we see ourselves in a new light? This is a time to be kind to yourself, to gather your courage and energy and begin anew. When you look back at difficult moments from your life, you can see how you were always acting from and within a particular set of circumstances. At any moment, you only knew so much. You were limited in different ways. Looking back, you might feel that you could or should have done better or differently, but you didn't. Consider that you did the very best you could at that particular time. And then I want to read a poem by Janet Morley, which is about this topic. And you can almost hear the difference between, I love what Mario Como says about poetry being a lure. And this poem feels luring in a way that prose doesn't. The Bodies of Grown-Ups by Janet Morley. The bodies of grown-ups come with stretch marks and scars, faces that have been lived in, relaxed breasts and bellies, backs that give trouble, and well-worn feet, flesh that is particular and obviously mortal. They also come with bruises on their heart, wounds they can't forget, and each of them a company of lovers in their soul who will not return and cannot be erased. And yet, I think there is a flood of beauty beyond the smoothness of youth. You, I'm sorry. And yet, I think there is a flood of beauty beyond the smoothness of youth. And my heart aches for that grace of longing that flows through bodies no longer straining to be innocent, but yearning for redemption. I love the end of that. Isn't that um, beautiful? Yeah. yeah, very, very beautiful. And <clears throat> it's it's interesting because um, the focus in both what you read from the book and, and what you're reading in that poem is, uh, in a sense, us forgiving ourselves for humanness. Yeah. Um, and, of course, uh, we also sometimes have work to do to forgive other people <laughs> for whatever oh, yes. whatever has hurt us. But I've come to find, I've been thinking about this some myself lately, that there's almost always something we're holding against ourself embedded in the things we can't forgive. That's so Uh, true. And one of the things that I always say when I talk about forgiveness is I start by saying, forgive yourself for what and who you cannot yet forgive. And that's a little bit like saying, um, silence is a full form of participation. Mm-hmm. It's like it takes something off the table right off. 
and it frees people because if they can forgive themselves, then more likely they can be more forgiving. Yes, and... um you know, when I've worked with practitioners of, of um, forgiveness meditation, which which I've done quite a bit in my past, um, you always start there, don't you? Yeah. With forgiving with yourself. Yeah. And then and then move move forward from there. So it's That's so right. it's so basic. Um, well, we can't I really guess, extend to others what we can't extend to ourselves. It has to start with ourselves often. I wonder if, you know, you were saying that people, if they, if they uh, are talking about what's m- most important when they come to the groups, they're going to say, um, you know, gratitude, love, maybe forgiveness will be three or so. But I wonder if that's because it's so hard to tackle in a way. Well, uh, actually, um, what I was talking about was the research um, that among people, that was the order of priorities that was important to them. I wasn't actually speaking Uh so much from my group experience, um, but more from what I've read. And and actually, I I think the expression of love is at the top of the list across the board that people know that they were loved and letting people know that. Which, of course, to me, links with forgiveness in a sense yeah. because <laughs> there's no relationship right. we have for longer than no close relationship we have for longer than you know a few hours without <laughs> having something to let go of in a way that's right that's so um, true so so there's uh having that as an open subject that's so gently uh introdu- introduced and also just put in the context of everyone has this that's another thing i appreciate everyone has things they regret everyone has things they wish they'd known better to do better or uh that it's just sort of a uh uh, part of being human i I thought you really conveyed that i'm I'm sorry i did i interrupted you no no i was just saying i thought you really conveyed that uh, yeah. Well, thanks. I, I wanted to. I think one of the things that can happen that's, that goes along with the negative habituation of the mind here is that regret, if, when we're filled with regret and we're looking back with a lot of regret and it just permeates our memory, what happens is that it obliterates what we did that was right and it diminishes what we did what was right. So I always, as a counterpoint, in sort of in a similar way in the gratitude chapter, is I ask people to remember what they did that was right and good. Tell me about that when we're talking about forgiveness or regret. It's really important to focus equally on those two things so that people don't go down a black hole. Well, also, that that would tend to lead in the direction of a, a sort of proportionality. Yeah. Uh, or a realistic view of the whole picture, huh? Right, right. But I think when people are filled with regret, they can't often pull up what was good. I think it's harder. Do you think the group members perhaps are able to help each other with that? I can imagine. Uh, Absolutely. They do a lot because people hear things People remember, first of all, 
positive things. In my bereavement group, I hear this a lot. I have somebody in my bereavement group who has expressed a lot of regret. I mean, this person had a long-term marriage that was very happy. And one of the things that this person goes over and over about is the petty, petty, he uses this word, I don't, mm-hmm. little fights they had. And it can be as mundane as about which sugar, which salt, shaker to use, which salt and pepper shaker. And he looks back and he just can't believe some of the little petty arguments that he had with his wife. And the group has been wonderful at mirroring back to him. But I remember you're telling us this and I remember you're telling us that, you know, Mm. it's really really important. What a balm for the soul, huh? Yeah. Yeah. Because the group holds what we can't hold. Well, also, I can imagine people saying, well, that wasn't so bad. Or, (laughs) you know, there's that. I'm kind of giving you a little more perspective on that. For that person. (laughs) Uh Uh And that's what matters, you know. And so the counterpoint is what was done that was right. So regret's a a really hard thing. Absolutely. It's really hard. Absolutely. Um, It demands self forgiveness. It just. We just have to do it. And that's, I think, part of where concentrating on what was right is really important antidote to that. Concentrating on, on what was right, but I also hear in what you're saying, not ignoring what we do wish we had done differently. Because oh, no. of, uh, if we ignore it, it just sort of sits there, yes? It festers. I, it festers, gets in the way. Yeah. No, we're not ever ignoring. We're just trying to hold in some balance, as you said earlier, um, the good, the good, the positive with what was difficult. But, you know, it, it really, it, it all starts, I think, with self-forgiveness and seeing our own humanity. Because mm. if we can forgive ourselves, we can probably forgive a lot. And Absolutely. know that what we did was we did the best we could under the circumstances. It's time for our second break, Claire. And when we get back, I'd really, I'd like to hear, I feel there's always something important in, in why we come to do this work. So I'd like to talk yeah. a little bit about that. And then um, okay. more about, uh, you know, what... Um, some other parts of the book that really stood out for me. So let's come back to that in a few minutes. And listeners, you can find me, my website at weatheringgrief.com, two Gs. And you can find Claire Willis at lastingwordsbook.com. Be back after the break. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all our show archives on demand. All from your iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. 
Explore the power of natural healing with Howard Strauss. Join us each week for an informative program that will help you learn effective healing methods using natural remedies. Howard's guests include top researchers, authors, and experts who will share their views on a variety of natural products and healing methods that really work. Tune in to The Power of Natural Healing with Howard Strauss, Mondays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between. Discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. Real Life Solutions, Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. I'm here with Claire Willis, and we are talking about her work in hospice and uh, with writing groups, uh, which resulted in her book, Lasting Words, that helps people reflect on and write about their their lives, uh, both to leave a legacy, finish business, and reflect on... um, reflect on what's happened in their lives um before the break i had said let's come back and talk a little bit about how you started doing this work i'm always interested in that because um there's almost i've I've met a couple of people who are sort of drawn accidentally quote-unquote to work with end-of-life issues but usually it's something a little more um um, experiential, I guess. Uh, you know, for me, it was my wife dying, for instance. But uh, what would you say about yourself? What drew you to this work in the first place? Um, I, I'd say there's, there are two pieces. <clears throat> One is that my whole life I've been told I'm, I was too intense. <laughs> uh. <laughs> and so I found a profession where intensity is um, welcomed. Um, and talking about difficult topics is welcomed. And I've always felt more comfortable in those kinds of conversations than, say, at a cocktail party or something like that. And I think the other thing is that I, I've become very interested. I had a near-death experience myself uh, four or five years ago and came very close to dying. And um, I think I started to think a lot about um, my legacy and how, what I wanted to leave behind um, and how I wanted to be remembered and uh, it, it's in stark contrast to my family, uh, my parents, um, my mother especially, never talked much about her background. And I think there was just too much um, trauma and unhappiness um, that it was too painful for her to talk about. So I don't know hardly anything about my grandparents, uh, except a little bit on my father's side. And that feels like a, a big um, lack in my life. And I have three grandchildren, and I one of the things that I do is every time they come to my house, I write them notes 
I write like a journal about what we did. So on Christmas morning, my granddaughter tried to face paint my face, and she said to me, Ama, your skin is too crumbly. It's like granola. <laughs> <laughs> so there's little things that they say that just are so precious. You know, I asked her uh, how she knew whether it was mothers or grandmothers picking her friends up at nursery school. And she said, oh, Amma, the mothers look much newer. (laughs) (laughs) You know, that that refreshing voice. So so anyway, I I think I want to leave a legacy um, that's intentional. I want to be intentional about my life and how I lead it and how I leave it. And I think that's a big part. And not having that history and connection with my one side of my family has left me wanting and feeling very strongly about this work. I also think that, um, you know, I had, it was interesting when the book came out, I, uh, we had a publishing uh, launch at my local bookstore, and there were about 150 people that came, and my kids came, and one of them said to me afterwards, I didn't, and, you know, they're young adults, they're like 38, 39, he said, I didn't know that you could talk in front of people. And I thought, well, this is really interesting. Why would they know that? They don't have any reason to know that. They don't live that near me. They don't come into my private work life. And it got me thinking about how little our children actually know us. Often they know how to get us going. They know what pushes our buttons. But really knowing the day-to-dayness of our lives, I don't think um, many of our children know that. So this uh, legacy work and leaving a legacy um, feels really important um, and leaving that, behind uh, the lessons we learned and, and the wisdom we'd like to leave with our relatives and loved ones feels like a really important thing. It's like a, a kind of a library of stories. You know, that's really uh, an interesting thing you're saying in terms of uh, something I hadn't quite put together, which is that often when I'm uh, preparing to to do this radio show, I'm thinking um, if my children get curious about me, they could listen. They would know a lot about how I think about things, <laughs> you know. And I think there is that natural human instinct, isn't isn't there, to be known? Well, you know, Cheryl. I think actually, I'm so glad you're saying this because I don't know about your kids, but my kids. Um, their goal in life right now is to get a night of sleep. They both have um, one-year-olds that don't sleep. Their focus is not on me and what I'm doing. They're just trying to survive. And I think what happens when we die is that there's an access point in our children that isn't there when we're alive. When we're alive, they're busy creating their lives. They're trying to get work that is generative. They're trying to figure out how to raise their children, whatever. Mm-hmm. But their attention isn't here. When I'm gone, I really believe, and I see it a lot, that they're going to want to know things about me that they don't have much interest or, or energy for right this minute. And so I keep a file um, in my uh, desk called Death. And in it are um, little sort of ethical wills that, and little pieces of wisdom and whatever that I've left for them in a file. <clears throat> That's quite quite beautiful to me. I, I don't know if I'm disciplined enough <laughs> to have the file or whether my discipline goes in that direction, I should say. But the idea that, um, you know, I'm, I am actually just sorting through my mother's thing. She died last September. And mm-hmm. 
I I do come across things that have meaning, things that uh, oh. she wrote to present in various places or things, yeah. you know, little breadcrumbs to uh, her life not as a mother. Yeah. Um, because I think that's the thing. I think our, ki- our kids are interested in us as their mothers, that's hopefully. Right. But we're so much uh, broader than that, aren't we? Right. They know us through our roles. Absolutely. As mother. Absolutely. But they don't know us fully as people, which is part of what, you know, a funeral and a memorial service does, is it fleshes out the person beyond the little corner that people knew. But to be fully known, I think, is a pretty universal wish. And this work and some of the writing in the book really helps people find a way to do that. Mm. This leads into the other part of the book that I I'm, I was wanting to talk with you about, wisdom, because there's a way that you and I are learning it, are learning about what we're talking about more deeply because we're experiencing it. You yeah. know, I have a completely different perspective on trying to know my mother as a whole person now that right. she's not here. Uh, right, and so, exactly. and I can't rush my kids to that. They'll come to that in their own way. That's but, right. Um, That's right. But that is that. But that is a wisdom taking an experience and and uh, having it illuminate something for you. Yeah. Um, Most of that, us are wise where we've suffered. Mm-hmm. Uh, joyful events don't bring us wisdom. Suffering brings us wisdom. And, uh, you know, uh, I don't know whether you remember this, but there was this biosphere experiment happened in Arizona in the late 80s. Do you remember this? Where I do. It had 66,000 panes of glass covering like a space about three football fields wide. And they had in it um, marsh, forest, ocean, and desert. And they had 3,800 different species of insects and animals and eight human beings. And one of the things that they found in the forest was that the trees were losing their capacity to stay vertical. And the reason, you know what the reason was? The heartwood, which is the timber in the center of the tree, wasn't encountering enough resistance to stay vertical. There was no wind moving in the biosphere. So the trees couldn't stand straight. And I think the the metaphor of uh, the heartwood not growing strong enough is so beautiful and so comparable to how we take resistance and suffering and difficulty in our own lives to strengthen our heartwood. And then we grow wise. And it's those those kinds of lessons that we want to pass on to our children, how we grew wise, and what are the stories behind how we grew wise. Because they're often stories of tender suffering or limitations we hit in ourselves or something along Mm -hmm. those lines where our heart is strengthened. Mm, that that uh, I didn't know that story about the heartwood. That really touches me very much. Isn't that um, such yeah, a beautiful a, a beautiful image for what you and I are are um, working with in our in our lives, huh? Right. Right. Well, um, maybe it would be a good moment actually for you to share the part of your book about about wisdom because I think it does. Okay. 
does really connect with what we're talking, you know, it's a specific kind of example of what we're talking about. So I'll just read this little paragraph on wisdom. As we begin to close our lives or as we are aging, we may want to find ways of sharing what we've learned with other people. What are the essential lessons of your life? How did you learn them? How will you pass them on? One way is by writing an ethical will. Ethical wills typically describe your values. They might include blessings that you would like to confer on others, lessons you have learned through your life or dreams you may hold for loved ones in the future. Some commonly expressed values might include education, generosity, kindness, family, patience, and the importance of friendships. Um, I, I want to read. I want to read a blessing, a couple of blessings that were written by people in my writing group. Um, one of the things that happens, I think, for us, especially as parents, is there's certain values and lessons we want to convey to our children, and our tendency is to say them in ways that can sound didactic and bossy, <laughs> like uh, uh-huh. remember the importance of getting a good education or uh-huh. be generous. And what I do in the book is I talk a little bit about how to take those instructions we have, how do we take those values and convey them in a way that the language is soft enough that people can receive it. So I'm going to read you two blessings by people in my writing group. One was written by a, a mother who was dying to her husband. Um, Claire, and she was Claire we may have to um, uh, just read a section of it because we only have a few minutes left. Okay, just, I'll read, a really, so I'll you read know. the last paragraph of it. Uh, he, she left a letter to her husband to, um, who was parenting their 10-year-old child. And she writes, let love into your life. I know this will seem impossible for a long time, but at some point, I want you to open yourself to the possibility of loving someone else. Falling in love again will in no way dishonor my memory or diminish the love we had for each other. In fact, it will honor our partnership and marriage. That's That's the most important thing my wife said to me. I know that for sure. That is such a gift to be given permission to love again. It's given very often. It's it's uh, so so mighty, yeah. Because of course, life life longs for itself. That's right. <laughs> you know, so it's That's hard right. to not love again, but uh, to not have permission is mighty. So thank you for sharing that. And the, and yeah. the other blessing, the other blessing was just written by a father to his son, and I think this is so sweet. May you always jump for joy at the sight of a snowstorm. May you always scream with excitement at the sound of the words Dairy Queen. May you always revel at the feeling of making snow angels in the yard. May you always know how much I love you. And may you know there is nothing you could do in your life to make me or your grandma, your grandpa, or your mommy stop loving you. So those are blessings, and you can see they they convey values, they convey what's important, but the, the language is soft. Yes, my my. Uh, it's reminding me of a story of my current wife, uh, oldest of eight, and when her dad was dying, he called all of those eight together, all grown, and mm-hmm. gave them each a blessing for their lives. Just put their oh. his put his hand on their heads and and bless them. Oh, um, may, gosh, may you have a beautiful cute. life. And that is not that is the kind of good memory that sticks. I'm telling you. So Oof, that's <laughs> it's beautiful. powerful. Very Claire, beautiful. thank you so much. I've enjoyed our time together so much, and I hope we stay in touch. And thank I hope you so much for having me. 
of course. I uh, uh, Go find Claire Willis at LastingWordsBook.com. And next week, my guest is Mary O'Malley, author of What's in the Way is the Way, Moving Beyond Your Struggle into the Joy of Being Fully Alive. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week. Abre mi corazón.